This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Don Winslow, whose latest book is City of Dreams. It's the second of a trilogy. The first was City on Fire, and the third coming out in a year is City in Ruins. Don Winslow is the author of several other novels. As of right now, there are 22 novels, and after the third volume, there will be 23. And insofar as we know right now, that will be it. Don Winslow also spends a lot of time on Twitter and creating videos which are strongly anti-MAGA and anti-Trump, and we will get into that as well. I interviewed you a year ago, and we went into some of the preliminary details regarding the trilogy, and I just want to quickly go back to those And then we'll move on to this book, which, by the way, I finished in two days. I couldn't put it down. Then we'll go on into a little bit of your political work. So going back, City of Dreams is based primarily on the Aeneid, though there are bits and pieces of the Oresteia and of the Odyssey in the book. At what point did you realize you wanted to turn the story of Aeneas and Odysseus and the Trojan War into a crime trilogy? Believe it or not, Richard, it was 28 years ago. I wrote the first sentence of the first book 28 years ago. And by the way, that sentence hasn't changed. It might be the only thing that never changed. You know, listen, of course, I was doing other things in the interim, but uh, I kept picking the idea up and then setting it down, writing a few chapters, putting it away, coming back to it. So yeah, it's taken quite some time. But the idea from the beginning was always the same. The spine of the story would follow Aeneas, who I call Danny Ryan, but also to incorporate, as you said, aspects of of the Odyssey and, and the Greek tragic dramas. When you first began thinking about it, Do you recall how the idea first came to you? I do, as a matter of fact. I think I first read Virgil in Latin before I read him in English because I I had it in high school and I had four years of Latin. But after that, you know, my education got really narrow. I majored in a a special program in college in African studies and then later military history. So I I had a thorough background in African literature and and for reasons we can discuss if you want in Shakespeare. But other than that, I was really ignorant about Western literature. So I was in my late 30s and realized how ignorant I was. And I I grabbed one of those great book lists. There are dozens of them, but I grabbed one of them and I decided I'm going to read the whole thing, which I did. It took me seven years. But Obviously, early in that process, you run across the the Iliad and the Odyssey and the, the Greek and Roman classics. And it struck me when I started to read the Iliad, how much it reminded me of two things, real life crime, some of which, you know, I'd grown up around and crime fiction. And so I had this idea. And then also, of course, not to be too pretentious, but borrowing from James Joyce, to try to write a modern crime saga using those characters and in in those plots. And at that point on Winslow, 
as you were looking around, you settled in because you're from the Providence area, you settled in on a real life crime family. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, listen, you know, when you grew up in Rhode Island in that era, between the 60s and the 80s, there were, you know, several crime families there. And a lot of times they they were in conflict. They went to war. Now, I I didn't base either of the, the Irish or the Italian crime family in this, on particular, any historical characters. They're definitely fictional. Uh, and, you know, they serve the purpose of fitting into basically the plot of the Iliad. You had spoken, I think, a year ago a little bit more about some specific families. Yeah, well, sure. You know, I mean, look, in everybody growing up in Rhode Island, you know, would be familiar with the Patriarca family and Raymond, as he was famously usually called by his first name. So I think that Rhode Islanders uh, or New Englanders reading the book, you know, automatically go there. But I needed two brothers. I needed Agamemnon and Menelaus. And so truly, I, I invented them. Now, in determining the three-book arc of, of this series, do you have a title for the overall trilogy, by the way? Not really. I think people have started generally calling it the City Trilogy simply because of the titles. I think that's a good shorthand. Uh, the, the City Trilogy, you had to make certain choices. And I understand that the choice to move Volume 2, City of Dreams, to Hollywood came about because Aeneas sees a mural of the Trojan War and you kind of looked for an analogy. Yeah, you know, the, the whole challenge and the fun of writing this trilogy was to come up with contemporary or modern, rather, equivalents to these ancient stories and, and characters. Because I, I, I want people to be able to read these books and enjoy them if they have no knowledge of the classics at all, just this, you know, standalone crime story. So when I came to the second part of this book, and I, of course, knew where Aeneas was headed, and I knew the story and had read it many times about the murals, I, I had to think, you know, what's the modern equivalent to that? And, and the answer was film. And it also presented you with a way to make Dido a queen. Exactly. You know, you, you're wondering with Dido, who's the equivalent of that, the tragic queen of Carthage? And the answer really was pretty simple, a queen of the silver screen which then also allowed me to enter Danny Ryan into the love story dominates the book. I did something reading both books. Well, the first book, I kind of looked at the Iliad. In this one, I said, before I started reading it, I said to myself, you know, I am not going to read a summary. I want to find out what happens. <laughs> and, and I'm glad I didn't. Good. Yeah because there were surprises. One of the questions that came up for me very quickly as I was reading the early part of the book was the further you get away from the template and just begin to bring characters to life, there's a certain point where you could feel constricted by the plot. Mm -hmm. As I was reading that, it suddenly occurred to me not really. And I think it's the point where Cass and Peter have their little moment about page 50. And I realized, you know, it's more fun that you are constrained. Yes. Yeah. That was a real challenge for me because 
if you read the Greek classics, and you know, I was really drawing on on two of them there, Agamemnon by Aeschylus and Euripides' Trojan Women, you realize, you know, that, that Cassandra is basically enslaved by Agamemnon, taken as a captive of war, as a sexual object, and, and brought back to Greece, uh, and eventually murdered along with him by his wife. And so, you know, that was a tough one, man. You know, because you can't do that in Providence, Rhode Island in 19. <laughs> Even the mob can't do that. And so it took me, I mean, in literally years to figure out how could, how could my Cassie and my Peter, my Agamemnon and, and Cassandra meet and why, and why would they ever get together? Why would she ever get together with him? And so that took some time to work out and I, and I, I hope it's effective. The other one was um, Dido having her brother murder her husband yeah. and trying to fit that one into the story of Diane, the the Hollywood goddess. Yeah, but, you know, but that comes from mythology. You know, it's interesting when you, when you read these epic poems like the Aeneid and like the Iliad, they're not telling everything about these figures either whether they're goddesses or, or whether they're human beings. I had to go back and read a lot of mythology to find, in modern terms, their backstories. And when I read Dido's backstory, man, I was just intrigued. And it's certainly very, very noir, sort of almost American rural noir, if you will. And what fascinated me was the opportunity to bring together these two wounded people, Danny Ryan and Diane Carson, who, you know, appear in the tabloids as being so glamorous, but really find each other because of their traumatic pasts. Uh, the two mobsters who get involved with Hollywood and eventually bring Danny in to meet Diane, does that have any basis in mythology? Were there two characters like that? Yeah, very slightly so. You know, listen, when Aeneas leaves Troy, he leaves not only with his father and his son, but with a small crew of survivors of the Trojan War that he nevertheless feels very responsible for, as as does Danny. So those those two characters are based on two of those characters in the Aeneid. But really, I made that segment up, frankly, because it was just, Richard, too much fun. Well, you're also, you had sufficient experience yourself in Hollywood to know exactly how to play it too. Yeah. The shakedowns. The shakedowns. Listen, I've done a few laps in that pool, you know, sometimes successfully and, and sometimes not. And, and by the way, I wrote those sequences, I think sometime in the nineties. Uh, it was irresistible because I, I just had this thought and I, I literally, I was by myself and started to laugh because I, I know these new England guys so well, you know, and the thought of them, in Hollywood with all that sunshine and glamour and beauty, but, but also the thought of them at a craft services table at a movie set where there's like free food, you know, would be like, you know, garbage to raccoons to those guys, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it just, I got to tell you, immodestly, it just cracked me up and, and I just wanted to do it. You know? There was a point early on because the first segment of the book, before we really get into that, uh, we pick up on Peter, on Cass and on several of the other characters, including Palumbo, who is Odysseus. 
at one point there was a lot of bloodshed and I just started laughing because yeah, there's a lot of bloodshed. On the other hand, this is the Greek myth. Of course, there's a lot of bloodshed. Of course there is. I, I mean, listen, the Iliad's a war story. And by the way, most of it takes place on a beach, you know? And so sure, there's a lot of bloodshed, you know, because it is. And then, I mean, good Lord, when you get to the end of the Odyssey, you know, it, it, I mean, Odysseus becomes Michael Corleone. Which is going to be your problem or was your problem when you were writing volume three? It was indeed. And it took a long time for me to figure out, you know, because bringing Odysseus home, bringing Chris Palumbo back to Rhode Island, who would the suitors of Penelope be? Again, that wouldn't work. It wouldn't work to have a bunch of guys looking to marry her, right? Right. And her, her fending them off. And, and I think I hit upon a pretty realistic solution, just knowing, you know, mob life and, and what would happen to a mob wife whose husband has, you know, has gone off the reservation. There's also very little about his kids thus far, but they have to play a role. Thus far. Stay tuned, my friend. Come back for volume three. Which comes out, I guess, next April, I would think. Yeah, yeah, a year from now, yeah, yeah. When I'm reading City of Dreams, little things just pop into my head. And I'm going, that's an interesting translation. And I want to hit you up with one more, which is Aeneas meeting his dead father turned into mushrooms in the desert. In the Aeneid, famously, uh, as in the Odyssey, and of course, you know, um, other works, Aeneas crosses the, the river Styx to go into Hades where he meets the dead. Obviously, I can't have Danny Ryan <laughs> cross that river, but I can do it symbolically. And I, I wanted very much that sequence. I, I wanted him to, to meet Dido again. I wanted him to, to meet his father again. I thought it was important for the entire trilogy to be able to move on. And so that was my solution to that, you know, as he meets a bunch of hippies in the desert as, by the way, in, in a sense, Aeneas does, you know, he goes to Sybil, the prophetess, who, you know, who introduces him to get across that river. Uh, he meets his own Sybil hitchhiking in the desert, and she gives him some magic mushrooms, and, and off he goes. I noticed that entire sequence also had a different kind of prose style, almost like Molly's soliloquy. I was... Um, as are so many of us, Richard, very influenced by Molly's soliloquy. You know, and again, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're basing a story on the Greek classics, that you are walking in the shadow of Joyce, which is intimidating. And, and by the way, I'm in no way comparing myself to Joyce. I, I do read that book about every other year, though. So I was very, very aware of Molly's final soliloquy and, and what's been termed stream of consciousness. I don't have experience personally with psychedelics, so I don't know what that is. But I have had fevered dreams, having had malaria, and we've all had dreams, you know. And so I thought if I could write it like a dream, it might work. Don Winslow, let's switch gears here and let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now, which is Twitter and uh, these videos a year ago, I don't remember if Musk had already got involved in Twitter, 
No. He had not. Right, correct. But now he has. Yeah. How do you look at your work on Twitter, and do you see yourself staying on there despite what's going on now? Yeah, look, uh, you're not thrilled. Who is? That must took it over. But Richard, I, I think you, you got to fight the fight where the fight is, you know? Clausewitz, the, the great military strategist, famously wrote that one should always fight a battle on the ground of one's choosing. Yeah, nice work if you can get it. You know, I, I agree that, that that's the best possible thing, but you can't always. And sometimes you just have to fight, you know, where it is and stand your ground. And, and as of now, I'm not willing to be chased off. That's a good thing because you have millions of views, people seeing your anti-MAGA, anti-Trump videos. When you're looking at messaging, are you just talking off the cuff most of the time or are you thinking about things like, quote, messaging? Certainly thinking about messaging. The nature of the beast is that a lot of what I do and we do, when I mean we, I mean Shane Salerno, my agent and partner and friend who, you know, he and I do the videos. I do the, the tweets. He does the, he and I do the videos. A lot of what we do is perforce responsive and reactive because you're reacting to the news and you're reacting to what the, the MAGA types say and do and, and what Trump, I, I hate saying his name, say and do. On the other hand, we devote a certain amount to longer game messaging, looking ahead at the elections and, and trying to think, how can we impact that in a positive way? I think that one of the things that we're looking at doing is to try to reach out more than we have, and we have done to some extent, but more than we have to Republicans who might now be persuadable to move away from the, the Trump MAGA right wing proud boy, you know, orbit. There's an article I just read in Vanity Fair in which you said that after years of keeping your distance, you finally was able to talk to a Republican neighbor of yours. Yeah. But he was the one who had to come to you and say, I'm done. Yeah, I was uh, pleasantly shocked. This guy's been my neighbor for 27 years. We get along fine. Uh, I live in an area that's 76% Republican, by the way, by vote. And, you know, we would from time to time get into debates. And he was a staunch Trumper. You know, he, he rings me up one day, calls me up one day and says, I'm done. I, I won't repeat the language that he used in regard to Trump, but I certainly agreed with it. And so that signals to me something. If this guy, who's a hardcore cowboy, I mean a Marlboro man, right, with a rifle in the, in the rack of the pickup truck and the whole nine yards, if he says I'm done, that starts signaling me something. On some level, and I don't know how that works, if he is doing that, then X number of people are also having the same thought. Yeah, that's my thinking as well, Richard. Yeah. You tweeted at one point, or maybe it was in the Vanity Fair article, that DeSantis is a horror show, but he's a distraction. I'm not 100% convinced of that. I think the man is a distraction, mm -hmm. but it seems to me that what he's doing in Florida is not a distraction. It's what they, MAGA, 
leaders, let's say, would like to do to the whole country, and it's there right in front of us. It's not personality we're talking about. It's it's their politics. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, I think what I meant by that was around the time of the indictment against Trump and all of that, that DeSantis was providing a distraction. I, I take DeSantis quite seriously, actually, and what's going on in Florida, which is a horror show. So, so we'll see. Don Winslow, the Republican agenda regarding abortion, uh, the quote, war against woke, which is racist, uh, don't say gay, the anti-trans, which is beyond belief, yep. and even teaching real history, all right. of that, that's going on behind the scenes, whether it's Trump, DeSantis, or not. So you have another area that you kind of need to slide into as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I agree with that. I, I'm sitting here being quite boring, just agreeing with you. That One of the problems I find in talking about this with friends is people that I might have disagreed with in small areas here and there, we find ourselves agreeing on everything, and it doesn't make for an exciting conversation. Well, it doesn't, and, and we end up shaking our heads, right? I had one of these conversations last night before an event, you know, with a bookstore owner, and, and you, you always end up the same way, shaking your head, because it, it feels like cloud cuckoo land. You know, to go back to the Greeks and Aristophanes, it feels like just a fantasy, you know, woven of, of lies. Are we really into the era of burning books? You know, and, and by the way, you know, I dedicated this novel to teachers. And I think teachers are getting hammered right now by all this nonsense. And you, you can't teach real history. Now we have to teach the mythology, the American mythology. And the other thing that really, and I, I need to speak about it more, I think, is is why do we think our children are stupid? Why do we underestimate them? Why do we think they can't hold two contradictory ideas in their head at once and make up their minds about what they believe and what's true or not true? And while I'm preaching, Richard, may I preach for another minute? You know, we've stopped, for the most part, teaching art. We have stopped, for the most part, teaching music. We are very rapidly stopping teaching literature, and we've all but stopped teaching civics. And then we wonder why society's become so coarse. Are you familiar with a book called Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean? I'm afraid I'm not. This is, I think, from 2016 or 17. She, in the book, she's a professor, she lays out the entire Republican agenda with regard to judges and brings it back to how they learned from what happened in Chile, how hmm. exactly to even let people on the left occasionally win elections, but then hamstring them with the courts. And that's exactly what we're seeing in this country. That's exactly what we're seeing in this country. And, and of course, I mean, speaking of the Supreme Court, you know, the revelations, I guess they're not really revelations, but about about Clarence Thomas, you know, are, are straight banana republic, aren't they? And they've been going on for a while. And you and I know or suspect that that big leak last year about overturning Roe came directly from Alito. Sure. It bothers me sometimes that the mainstream media seems to 
try to put this in some kind of normalized context, and there's nothing normal about any of it. Yeah, l- the lack of outrage is outrageous to be cute with language, you know. Uh, I, I think that, that one problem with the United States, and particularly the American, roughly the left, is the lack of sustained anger. You know, we, we don't seem to be able to sustain our rage. January 6th, I watched people with Confederate flags and, and also one of the, the most offensive things I've seen in my lifetime. People marching on the American Capitol with an American flag with Donald Trump's face emblazoned on it. I'm glad my dad was no longer alive to see that because it would have broken his heart. That's not why he was on Guadalcanal as a 17-year-old. My point is that we're angry for a few days and then we move on. I'm not ready to move on from that. I want consequences. I want, you know, listen, you, you got a few useful idiots now who are going to jail. While the leaders of that coup, there's no other word for it, that attempted coup, are in Congress. On top of that, we have the, quote, hopefulness, which never pans out over at places like MSNBC. And by talking specifically about Mueller just turns the page kind of thing. And now we've got the same thing with Garland, overlooking the real horrors that are going on behind the scenes. And, you know, I just shake my head. That's another reason for, for doing the Twitter. It's another reason for doing the videos is, is to remind people and, and to try to, to refresh that rage of, of what happened and what's continuing to happen. You know, this is by no means over. And of course, we've got the Dominion lawsuit being settled. Fox News didn't even have to get on the air and admit that they lied. Right. And can you imagine, listen, and this makes me sound like an old codger. Can you imagine Walter Cronkite going on the air and deliberately promulgating what he knows are untruths? I mean, any decent journalist would have resigned in disgrace. I remember when I was a kid reading a book about the New York Times, and there was an intern who, as a joke, wrote a little joke about Jake Barnes, you know, the character from The Sun Also Rises. Right. An obituary. Tiny little thing in the back of the paper and was immediately fired because you cannot do that in responsible journalism. Now you've got these huge characters just spewing what they know are lies to the American public. In a better time, they would have had to resign in disgrace and never be heard from again. Tom Winslow, since we're going to just sit here and shake our heads for the next few (laughs) minutes, uh, let's go on to Hollywood a little bit. It seems, from what your Twitter feed is saying, Austin Butler has been signed on as Danny Ryan for a trilogy of films of City on Fire, City of Dreams, and City in Ruins. Is that correct? That is correct. And that's for sure going to be movies rather than, you know, long form. Correct. Uh, And you're writing the screenplays? I am not, sir. I I hope they find someone much better than me to write the screenplay. (laughs) Well, you did write a couple of screenplays. You wrote Savages. Shane and I co-authored Savages. Shane, you know, has written little films like Armageddon and the sequels to Avatar and a bunch of other films, little tiny little movies. But 
Um, I know where my skills lie and where they really don't. And I, I think it's better that, that somebody else write the screenplay. When I went to IMDb, it said that a adaptation of your novel, The Border, is currently in production. Correct. I'll be watching some footage maybe this afternoon. Yeah, it's going to be a, a long-form series on FX. And that's different from The Cartel? What we've done is, is taken what, you know, I guess forms an, another trilogy, the power of the dog, the cartel, and the border. FX acquired all three of those books, and the series is based on all three books. And what happened to, according to IMDb, there was also in development a Sam Giancana biopic that you were writing? Yeah, I, that's, that's still kind of in the offing. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about the trilogy and Austin Butler, there's no director yet and there's no screenplay writer, correct? Oh, not yet. It, listen, it's very early days. Austin Butler just came on a few weeks ago. And, and so, you know, all of this is, is still, but it's moving forward. Yeah. You've now spent a year not writing books. How does it feel? It's very different. It's very different. I mean, the first thing I've always done every morning around 5 a.m. is read a bunch of newspapers. I still do that. More focused, you know, on the Twitter feed and, and the sort of activist thing. But it, it, it's, it's definitely different, Richard. You know, it's sometimes I have this sort of moment of slight panic thinking I need to be doing 10 pages today. And then suddenly I realize, no, I don't. Well, what about that? drive that I know a lot of writers have. And I sometimes see it if I'm reading a book and I'm, the author's dead, I'm not going to interview the book, you know, the author. Yeah. In, the, in yeah. the back of my mind, the questions still swirl on what I would ask the author. Right. And for you as a novelist, there must be days when you wake up and you go, that would be a great story. And in your head, you start developing it, even though you're not going to write it. Sure, of course. Listen, that, that's instinctive. But, you know, the, the thing about life, the thing about the world is not that there's too little to do. There's too much to do. There are endless stories to write and, and new ones happening every day. But there are also endless books to read and reread. And, and at least for now, and I think my decision's firm. I, I do want to, to focus on on this, you know, this battle that we're in. Speaking of watching things, are there any specific TV shows, particularly in your field, but just generally, that caught your eye and you're going, wow, this is fantastic? I mean, aside from Succession and The Sopranos. <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't watch Succession, to tell you the truth. You know, I, I watched the first five minutes and it was... Rupert Murdoch and I just said, yeah, I don't want to be with these people. I understand it's wonderful and and that that my reaction is is probably the wrong reaction. But you know, again, there's only so much time in the day. I, I recently binge rewatched uh, The Wire. I probably spend a lot of time reading. You know, what have you been reading lately? Boy, you know, I I I got a chance to get an early glimpse at T.J. Newman's new novel, which is terrific, and. You know, some stuff from my buddy, Adrian McKinty. Uh, and then I've been reading sort of in a really kind of deliberate fashion, Abdul Razak Gurna, 
who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, a Zanzibari author who's, however, lived in England for you know quite a number of years, and then reading a bunch of African history. Kind of funny, because that's probably going to get you going about, I could write a book about Africa. <laughs> well, I could write a book about Africa. You know, I spent a lot of time there, and, and actually my my formal education is in African history. And one final question, coming back to something you said early in our interview, which is, if you want me to talk about Shakespeare and his relationship to my work, so now's your chance. Oh, okay. Because I was that kind of geek. I, I started reading Shakespeare when I was about six years old, and I'm that teenager who would take a volume of Shakespeare and go off in the woods and sit under a tree and read. Later in life, I, I made my living, at least during the summer, by going over to Oxford University and directing Shakespeare with, with international high school students at their Shakespeare festival. And so for, oh God, 12 summers, uh, I was over there directing Shakespeare, which was an extraordinarily valuable experience. Tom Winslow, do you have another video coming up that people can look forward to? Yeah, we'll, we'll be putting them out periodically. I, I don't want to reveal what it is yet. You know, I just like them to drop the way they drop. So, uh, of course, stay tuned. Do you think there's any specific way, because obviously being online and talking in social media doesn't work, you can't talk to a MAGA person or Republican that you don't know on social media. Is there any way in or do you have to wait as you did for them to come to you? No, I definitely think that there's a way in, you know, because I mean, the, the guy that we were talking about didn't didn't come to that conclusion from nothing. Right. There must have been something on the news that struck him and offended him about Trump. And I, I think that there are ways of messaging and there are ways of telling plain, simple truth in tough language that can reach some of these people. Look, the hard, hardcore, the proud boys and all that crap, white supremacists, you are never going to reach. But I think other people, you definitely can. You've been listening to an interview with Don Winslow, whose latest novel is City of Dreams. It's a sequel to City on Fire. And next year, we will see City in Ruins. You can also follow him, of course, on Twitter. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>